So hello everybody and welcome back to another season of Folk on Falcons. I'm Philip Mundy and joining me is... Ian Joseph. As many of you have probably found out, you can always find us on social media. Yeah, so it's the usual places. Uh, Facebook, if you type in Folk on Falcons and on Twitter, it's at Folk on Falcons. Over the summer we haven't had the episodes we'd intended to and that's because we're in the process of discussing with Matt Thompson, having a special guest episode where we'll discuss the direction of the club and all that it has to offer for us so that'll be hopefully really sometime this month and it'll touch on some of the things that I mentioned at the fans forum early in the month but also um, there's a couple of other questions we're going to obviously ask him so you might get a little inside scoop if you listen to that so hopefully that we'll record that in the next week or two talk about the general direction of the club and everything that we've got to look forward to. If we move on to the match itself from the weekend, the first thing was, was it going to go ahead? Unless you've been living in a hole for past week, obviously certain things are a bit bigger than sport, it would seem. And it went ahead, which I think ultimately is the right decision. Not, not necessarily an easy one to make, but um, I think it is the right decision. And I was unfortunately at a wedding on Saturday, but I know you there, Ian. And what, what were your thoughts from the general mood in the ground? Um, yeah, I, I echo those, I think it was the right decision. Initially, I wasn't so sure, but having been there, it, it, it was the right decision. I thought it was nice for the Falcons family to kind of be there all together and to publicly sort of share their grief, I suppose, and respect for obviously the late Her Majesty of the Queen. Um, and it was nice to for the club to have the minute silence and to everyone off duty to sing God Save the Queen in public. And it, it was well done by by the by fans, by the club, and it was it's a focused memory that will, I think, live with me for a very long time. Obviously, it was tragically unusual circumstances, but it, it, it was all well done, and I think the club went about the right way in terms of the, the music as well. Um, and, other, and, the, and other things that they did mention during the match and before the match, it was all very well played by crowd and club, so we're well done, everyone, for that. Um, did you say God Save the Queen, or... Did you sing one word? No, I, I got it. I'm sure I got it right. Of course, <laughs> takes me to get used to. But uh, no, of course, God Save the King was sung, and it was sung very well by everyone there, which was nice to hear. And it was nice to see the Falcons showing respect by wearing black, not the green kit. Um, Harlequins obviously didn't show any respect and wore a, a joyous multicolour one, but there we go. Moving on to the match itself, I think a few of us, when we saw the, the team sheet, thought, ooh, eh, what's going on here? Playing Blamire at seven, Robinson at six, having a, a back line where you think, really? Is that the starting 15 for the first game of the season? But hey-ho, it seemed to work okay. Yeah, um, I mean, coming away from there, um, the, it was still the kind of a sense of frustration and a bit of annoyance, but it wasn't so much in the performance this time. It was the fact that we kind of obviously came so close to, to getting, if not a couple of points, you know, we could have won that. And that's Obviously, credit goes to, to the players for that and the sort of makeshift team that they put together. Very much unfamiliar back line and, I guess, back row, really. But in many ways, they didn't us lots of credit. And also, there was only one new signing, of course, Josh Barton at nine, um, who I thought put himself around fairly well. But uh, for the rest of them, often makeshift position, Stevenson, of course, being back at centre, I don't think they did themselves much harm, really. I thought in many ways that they did step up and it's always going to be a bit of a lottery the first game of the season. Um, both teams obviously not going to be you know, sort of up to speed yet, but I, I thought they credited themselves well. I, I think that's also down to, to Walder as well. You know, the, the new coaching setup um, got them going for this for the match and they're unlucky to not come away with only the one point. Yeah, I think if you had been walking into Kingston Park on the way there and someone had said, would you take a point from this game? You'd say, thank you very much and do a swift turn on sixpence and walk home again. Whereas... What actually happened was last play of the game, if Radwan was only half a yard quicker, 
then he probably would have gone the length of the pitch and scored and we would have gone away with five points, not just the one, because obviously we lost the losing bonus point. But hey, we scored five tries against Harlequins, which is no mean feat. And I think all the players acquitted themselves very well. It has to also be said that although you could have a couple of glances at the starting 15, um, in the backs, everybody was playing in their preferred position. It's just maybe not the 15 that you'd necessarily say were the, the best 15 on paper, or sorry, the best backline on paper. But in the forwards, I'm wondering whether... The Blamay, I think, could have been could be a new feature we see a bit more often. I know there is a big long injury list, but I think he actually acquitted himself very well. It looks to me like he's lost a bit of weight over the summer. I know Eddie Jones likes players with a bit of versatility. And is he just trying to have a few more irons in his fire that he can pull out and play along with? I don't know, but it certainly wasn't a disaster. Well, yeah, I mean, if you didn't know he was a hooker and this is your first game watching the Falcons and it's the first time I've ever seen him, you wouldn't have given it a second thought he wasn't a reasonable flanker I don't know I mean I, I think surely he's still going to be hooker but we'll have to say I mean it depends how bad the injury crisis is in terms of his long-term prospects playing in that position but it does show his versatility and of course he you know he has played there before I'm sure he played there a couple of times last season at least and acquitted himself well I'm not sure at this stage you want him sort of anywhere near the starting 15 starting at flanker but um, it's a good option to have and I say he is very versatile he's always been if not the, he's always been very mobile hasn't he he's always been he's not he's not so much like you know a battering man as such but he's always been very mobile and always been good on his feet and if if he can play in that position and he performs well in there then, then why not you know just because you're you know, you're traditionally a, or you're always a particular position. If you can fill in a position, then why not? You know, especially when we've got a, such a long injury list, uh, oddly enough, at the start of the season. Um, I think it was the Premiership Cup he played in at Flanker last season. He started there when we were low on numbers towards the end of the season. But um, what impressed me the most was not just the fact that he got around the park for the first 10 minutes, because if you think about a lot of modern day hookers, they're very much open side, like maybe a bit rounder. But normally, hookers get pulled off after 60 minutes after not running anywhere near as much as an open side would. But Blamaya played pretty much the whole game there, if not the whole game. I'm not sure if he got taken off or not. And he wasn't puffing at all, which I think just shows, A, what a bit of a farce it is when they switch the whole front rows around after an hour, but also that his fitness must be well up there. And he's probably the fittest hooker in the country. Certainly the fittest out of the ones contending for England status because... I couldn't see a Cowan Dickey or a George running around at open side for 80 minutes. Yeah, well, I kind of similar to what I said before. You know, he's always been really mobile, so there'd be kind of any question about that. So he's one of these players, if you can keep him on for the whole game or as long as possible, then, then why not? Because I think he's always going to bring something to the game, um, no matter kind of what the, the situation is. But again, alluding to back a few minutes ago, it'd be interested to see going forward in this season. And well, he's got a couple of Premiership Cup games coming up if he kind of stays at flanker and how, how versatile they want to make him this season. I guess that's kind of something for the coaches to reveal over the course season in their team selection, whether that's forced or otherwise in terms of injuries. Yeah, and on the other flank, we had Mr Robinson, and obviously he's played there a bit last season, and but he predominantly played second row. But um, once again, is it kind of the, are we going down the Eddie Jones tactics of playing three second rows, or is it just the fact that we want to play Chavez and we're a bit light in the back row? But once again, he had a f- fantastic game. And I think overall, the pack did extremely well. It was the first time a lot of those guys had played together. They hadn't necessarily all been on the pitch, certainly not in those positions during pre-season. And the first scrum, when we were up against um, Marla and Lowe, the hefty South African, and we, we went down and gave away a penalty, you thought, uh-oh, is this going to be one of those days? But to be fair to Branting, the young lads come in and... 
I think after that first scrum, he actually had the better of him for the rest of the match. Yeah, it didn't look out of place at all. Um, you know, you thought they'd be played 100 Premiership games. Um, yeah, really, really good performance. I thought he was not only in the set piece, I thought in the breakdown as well, didn't look out of place, kept system really well. Really, really impressive. Um, and I think it's another one of what, you know, it's another young really exciting forward that's come through for us um, to add, I suppose, competition to what is actually a pretty decent pack. As you say, throughout the, the game, really, I thought that they fronted up really well, um, apart from this, this, the first scrum, and I think it's kind of miffy lineups. Generally, our forwards are pretty good. And I think even in terms of the Guggins tries, obviously, they're very much, obviously, forwards, forwards tries, and they got the better Harlequins in those situations, and we always looked a threat from those situations. And to be fair, that's a continuation from last season. That they've, they've built on that, and at least from the evidence of one game, that they're continuing that. So, you know, it's really heartening to see these young players come through, especially the forwards, and don't look out of place at all. Yeah. Um, one other player that didn't look out of place in between the forwards and the backs, the half-backs, young Josh Barton. He's come through the championship, and I know he's been tipped for greatness by a number of people there over the last couple of seasons, but... I think he had a fantastic first full debut. I thought it was I thought it was pretty solid, not to be too negative or anything. Uh, and I thought it was pretty solid. I thought some of his kicking was perhaps not something I would like to see, but whether again that's instruction rather than sort of what he would like to do. I actually thought it got a bit better when Nordi Calametti came on at the moment would have like I actually would like to see him start because I think I felt kind of sorry for him. Obviously it's good to have the competition. Um but I've kind of felt that considering his performances towards the end of last season, he should have started. Um, and I think actually he was a bit quicker than, than Josh Barton. But I mean, it's his first premiership game. I don't think he let himself down in any way. Um, and I think we can be encouraged that you know he's only going to get better. And I think the more you expose him to this, to the premiership and also the teams we play against week in, week out, um, as, uh, because of course it's such a high level, I think it will only improve him. Um, but I think there were plenty of encouraging signs from him. What I'd also say is quite encouraging when I watched him. He wasn't afraid to get stuck in. You have certain scrum halves where they like to hang around the back of a mall and whinge at the ref or wave their arms around and try and draw attention to something going on. There's a few times he almost played a bit like a back row and just went and threw himself on a forward twice and his size and got stuck into it. Now that might be because in the championship you don't have the luxury of 15 different camera angles of video refs and whatever and he's just got, just got to do it. Also, I think when a big lad ran at him a couple of times, he's put his body on the line and made very good defensive tackles. So I guess he's one to watch. Um, maybe it was a, a thing from Kilometer, just you haven't got this position nailed down, got to keep trying sort of thing. And maybe it's a bit of psychology, not starting in the first game of the season, just seems on his toes, I don't know. Um, I think it's also got to be mentioned that when we said the mall was very good and the scrum was very good, um, line-outs... Not so, not so sure on them. There's a couple where didn't quite go on to plan, but on the whole, it got better, I think, as the match went on. But it was nice to see Muapola kind of rumble over for what has to be the best try of the match. It's what you like to see, isn't it? I think that that's what rugby's all about, isn't it? You forget the you know the ridiculous try of the week nominations. You know they're they're from one in the pitch to the other, which we won't talk about. And Radwan's one. I mean, that's that's not what we're going to see, is it? What we want to see is Muapola specials like that. that. That's what it's all about. But <laughs> if only that was that would have been the winning try. I mean, that would have been the absolute icing on the cake, wouldn't it? But uh, I think even after we got that, um, there was. Still Still a bit of trepidation about whether we're going to be able to hold on or not. But against someone like Mulipola, I mean, it's it's nice to see him come on 
and obviously have a real impact on the game. I think, you know, you got, we're trying to evolve our front row. We've got a lot of really young English local lads coming through in the front row. I mean, that's obviously, that's obviously the idea to be the future going forward, but it is nice to have options like Munibola, who has shown there at the very highest level on his day can still you know, could still potentially win us the game. So I think that's also really good to see. Yeah, he did very nearly win us the game with six minutes left. We're still ahead with a five-point win under our belts. And then, obviously, Harlequin score the length of the pitch try. But all that one came from was not chasing a kick well enough. We'd done it for the whole game, chasing reasonably well. And then it was just Radwan up by himself against three attackers and they skin him in their own dead ball area. Then one phase of play later on our own 22, and then the next phase are in the corner. And you just think, well, oh, is that what we've done all game, all that hard work for? Just people not chasing a kick properly? Well, I think if, if there were two negatives from the game, from our performance, it was probably, like I mentioned earlier on, the kicking, I think, still wasn't great. There was still often, I thought, that we gave the ball away too easily and needless kicks, which didn't make any distance. And you mentioned oh, um, that we chased, or I thought our times actually didn't chase them very well. And um, with kicks that were too short, we suddenly just gave the ball away. And I think, actually, the real killer was the penalty count. I thought we gave too many, too many penalties, particularly sort of around the halfway line, which gave them opportunity to attack our line. And I guess, in the end, that's how the pressure told them, that's how they got such a large number of tries, really. Not through any stupendously wonderful play from their part. Even with the 100-metre try that they got um, to really win the game. Again, that kind of came from a, a, an unnecessary kick, really, I, I, I felt. Um, and I think if the only criticism, the two main criticisms, I think, really are that. I hope they can work on those, but the worry for me is that they're, they're sort of things that we do week in, week out. Um, but having said that, apart from those two pos- negatives, there were a hell of a lot of positives from it. Yeah, um, I think... One other thing that maybe we need to work on is, uh, we mentioned it a couple of seasons ago, the, what we called the Falcons special. That is a lot of hard work. Normally, McGuigan ends up scoring. And then what do we do? Kick off, drop it, give away a penalty, scrum, or you know, you name it. Mess up a simple bit of play that should be the standard bread and butter. Instead, 30 seconds later, with three points or a try down, and happened once again on two occasions. It's probably the rugby equivalent. Well, it's as close as you can get many ways to kind of conceding straight away from the kick. I'm not quite a rugby on goal, but probably the closest we can get to it. And even straight after halftime, wasn't it? I think if they hadn't called halftime, you know, Harlequins of the century scored straight after we went ahead. And yeah, I mean, that's something obviously we have to try and work on. You call it the special for a reason because we do it all the time. And, you know, I'm afraid if, if we are going to try and pick up wins, you know, we, we have to stop and doing all, all our good work because you can always see it every week as you mentioned that you know you get something like a McGuigan pushover mess up the kickoff just let teams straight back into and again I, I guess that kind of leads on in some ways to my criticism about the penalty count um, sometimes you would get in sorts of trouble at kickoff not kind of exit well give away a penalty either that phase or phase after and just put ourselves straight under pressure and then, then concede and then that's why we're not winning games really Very quick one before we move on to next week's game um, we have mentioned the selection a couple of times already and one thing that is now given as well as the selection is a list of the unavailable players you and Stevens and Carreras weren't on that list of unavailable players so therefore we've got to think that they were available but not selected makes you wonder what's going on I think the method behind the madness could be due to the aerial presence of a back three of Radwan Stevens and Carreras Um, therefore we opted for Tate and Earl who are a bit taller but not necessarily one-on-one such good attacking prospects what are your thoughts on that one possibly it is 
well, eyebrows are raised, I think, with both of Stevens and Carreras not in the squad, uh, because you would think that surely certainly Carreras has got to be in and around the starting 15. Um, I wonder if that's anything, the fact he hasn't been that long back from Argentina, I don't know. It's all I can think over there. But, I mean, I suppose if you do have Brad Wan, Stevens and Carreras, that is a, a very small back three, a quick one, but a very small one. Maybe it's tactical, maybe this fitness issues behind the scenes that we just know about. But you're right in terms of, I think, you know, there's a couple of questions to be asked about that. But maybe we'll get more of an idea when the Premiership Cup games come around or even next week away to Leicester, we'll have to see. But I think it's worth keeping an eye on that, actually. We're going to mention that anyway, but since the game, um, it has been announced today that we have got a new signing in the back three area. Preferred position fullback from Saracens. His name, Obata Yinbo. Um, I can't see I've seen him say I've seen much of him before. By all accounts, he's played junior for England and things, so he's presumably not a bad player. But I guess that must be an indicator that we have got a couple of injury issues there. I know Penny's out for a while, and it must be that he's out for a bit longer than we thought. Yeah, I mean, that can only be the reason. Um, certainly with people like Carreras, I've seen pictures of him training, so obviously he's, he's not suffering from it. If he has an injury, it's obviously nothing major. But yeah, I think it's just got to be covered there because it looks like... As especially at fullback, perhaps we are a little short. He's only there signed for a couple of months. I don't know if it's a case of that can be extended or not if, if we're still sort of in a bit of an injury crisis, particularly at fullback. But obviously, it's a position that they desperately need to cover. Um, looks like to be a reasonable signing, at the very least, someone who can sort of play those cup games and necessarily be called upon, you know, from, from the bench in, in league games. You just briefly touched on it there that we're playing Leicester next week, away at Welford Road, obviously, the reigning champions. Um, they actually got beaten this weekend, so is it a good or a bad time to play them? You tell me. I think, unfortunately, we might be on the receiving end of a bit of a reaction, actually, especially the nature they lost in the very last play of the game. It's obviously it's going to be really, really tough, I think. A bit like I mentioned before, if you told us we would get losing bonus points, I hope the Quinns start snap your hand off, I think, even more so um, than this coming weekend. I think, you know, we could be a situation where actually we don't play that badly, but we could well be steamroller just by the quality Leicester have, and especially they're going to be at home, their first home game of the season as champions. And they're definitely going to look for a reaction after the day, especially the nature of the defeat away to Exeter. They're going to make a point. So I think, unfortunately, we're playing them at possibly the worst time. But you never know, and fingers crossed, you might be able to get some from the game. And I think, at the very least, let's try and hope for a good performance and just something, even if it's not any points, but something we can kind of take away from that game and, and go into the next week. Yeah, certainly. And then the week after that, you've you've uh, just touched upon, um, there's actually two games in the next week after that, a bit unusual. Um, we've got the Premiership Cup midweek, and then on the weekend, we've got Worcester. Um, Premiership Cup being against Wasps. So obviously it'll be a completely different 15, almost certainly a completely different 22. But it could be that we play two clubs that are both in administration in a fortnight's time. Who knows? We touched upon it last season, especially quite heavily towards the end about the financial peril which both of those two clubs are in. And at the time, it was very much Wasps are in the, the deep doo-doo and Worcester just watch out what's going on here. And over the last few months, we've been kind of proved right on both fronts, but Wasps are still functioning without quite as much problems as Worcester at present. It's interesting that you say there in terms of Wasps seem to be the only one in immediate danger, but I think they have the backing for one way or another and the resources to kind of keep going and to probably, I guess, potentially probably pull their way out of it short term. Worcester, as you say, used the term bubbling over. It was kind of in the background 
but it's just kind of exploded in the past couple of weeks. It obviously, it's been catastrophic for them in such a short space of time. Obviously, very much an outsider looking it onto the situation over the past couple of years. But I think you do wonder about how they had the financial capacity to have such a big changeover of playing and coaching staff seemed to be every single year there were huge numbers of players coming in and out questions sort of had to be asked about in many ways how, how is that possible and players like Van der Merwe and some of them had huge wages there and you sort of think for a club which is similar to us in many ways and how is that sort of sustainable and maybe there's been other things in the background which me personally aren't necessarily aware of and can't take a comment on or don't have the knowledge on is as I say very much that's I'm looking in but whatever it is it's all coming to a head now. And as we're all aware, they're in very serious trouble. I mean, their sponsor had to pay for travel down to London Irish last week. They can't afford a new kit. And I think even Steve Diamond's chipping in for some of the playing expenses just to actually get the games going. So obviously, you know, very, very serious trouble. You sort of hear stories coming out from places like Twitter and whatnot, or maybe there's negotiations for some new backers, but it's not necessarily guaranteed even that that would help much. And they're still going to administration also. So it's very much up in the air that, but I think it's, we'll have to, it's also a case of playing week by week, just really see what's going to happen with Worcester. In whether three weeks' time we're trying to do this podcast with no game, because Worcester simply haven't been able to fulfil it. We'll have to wait and see, but it's, you know, especially for, a club that's in many ways similar to ourselves. It is very, very sad to see. And unfortunately, it's a warning about the state of professional rugby in this country. Yeah, you say the club's very similar to ourselves. Um, Worcester in the past seemed to have largely been able to maintain finance by taking out debt against the, gr- the ground around the stadium, I-, I assume with the development potential. Once again, very similar to Kingston Park. Um, I'm probably going to ask Matt Thompson this when we speak to him in the next week or two, but um, Newcastle Falcons have a huge amount of debt outstanding with Seymour Curdy, the main owner of the club. That debt is basically underwritten by the development potential of the ground around the stadium. I believe there's a covenant in place with the council which somewhat limits the development that can actually be done on parts of Kingston Park. I don't know the extent of it, but um, in Worcester, the local politicians and council whoever got involved and said, they're not going to allow development of Worcester as a non-rugby playing entity. Therefore, what is supporting the ability to pay debts? The answer, nothing. So HMRC are saying, well, you always saw this money from the last season and the taxes and whatnot, and they can't pay it. So they're now in the situation where a local businessman called Mr. O'Toole's rolled in and he said, well, I'll buy the club if it enters administration, which effectively means all the creditors will get 10 pence in their pound or however much they can scrabble together then they'll try and restart the club as a going concern after shafting everybody, and it should just about stay in existence. If that happens, then the maximum penalty that Worcester can get is a 35-point deduction for the league, which is an absolute joke considering the fact that Saracen's got the same thing for the salary cap, and it's obviously neither of them are great, but one is a team that can afford it paying far too much for players, another is a team that can't afford it, paying players within the rules, but paying more than they can afford to pay the players. And the same thing could happen with Wasps. We've got no relegation this season, so we could have two clubs that are financially destitute, to all intents and purposes should cease to exist. The club will be, or the season will be in absolute chaos if these two clubs can't fulfil their fixtures. And I'm pretty sure that at least one of them won't be able to by the end of this calendar year, let alone the season. I think by the end of the season, it could get very interesting. And it seems like the RFU are completely unprepared for what to do in the event of it. And it makes you wonder what's going on at the, the Premiership Rugby sort of upper echelons, because without being disrespectful, the Queen died this week. It wasn't sort of a, a force majeure. It's been on the cards for a while. Or not on the cards. That's a very wrong word to say. 
it's not been a surprise that somebody at that age dies. You'd think they might have a, a paragraph inserted somewhere into one of the rule books about what happens when it, this eventually happens. The chances are it'll be in the rugby season, two thirds of the calendar year. So you had the games on Friday night, which were postponed for the obvious reason. You then found out midway through Saturday morning that the games are actually going ahead. And you think, what on earth are these people doing? The, the Wasps and Worcester thing. If we two amateur hobbyist podcasters can foresee something going on, you'd think they might write something in the rules a bit more seriously than just a, a 35-point deduction. And it makes you wonder what these idiots are paid to do. It seems like there's a lot of people just sitting in their ivory towers with their head in the sand. I mean, in many ways, probably the 35-point deduction is a safety net, whether that's done on the basis of they know that there is no relegation, because essentially it's meaningless. I mean, who cares if Fishbot with the league of minus 35 point deduction? I mean, it doesn't matter. As long as they can kind of stay going as a going concern, then, you know, they're on life support, but they're still alive, essentially, isn't it? But if you if you forcefully relegate them, and they're on that, 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 that can be the life support pulled, essentially, couldn't it? So I think in the sense that they have to have a sort of punishment of, the points deduction, but essentially it's meaningless. And I think that's in many ways a sort of cop out for it. But you do raise a very good, a very, very good point. Well, the fact that in many ways it's unfair, you, you mentioned Saracens, how, you know, is a 35 point deduction for Worcester the same or equitable to what Saracens got? Well, no, I think it actually it's worse. So, you know, and it's the whole point about the disconnect. And I think going on to the point about the delay in, in, coming to a decision about whether to play this weekend or the weekend gone rather or, or not, uh, that was an absolute farce. Every other sport was able to very quickly, one way or another, come up with a decision. And I wonder if it's a disconnect between Premier Rugby and the RFU. Maybe one wanted one, one wanted the other. And they, had, they spent ages communicating with each other as to what they wanted to do. Um, but you had ridiculous situations. I think Northampton, or was it Northampton? Well, one of the teams was already on the coach going to their game and then eventually that so when they got there they said oh actually no we decided to call it off and because they waited so long and it's just sort of fast like that and in many ways it kind of sums up the whole well the whole upper echelons of the game really in this country and you're right in that I think we'll be very 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 surprised if there's going to be 13 clubs in the premiership or certainly 13 clubs of complete fixtures in the premiership come the end of this season yeah we've touched on Worcester and how they're just basically spending too much money every season and have run out. Wasps, on the other hand, there's a little bit different in that the the way that they've been financed. For the, well, first, if you wind the clock back a decade, they left their traditional grounds in London and High Wycombe because they're bankrupt. And Coventry had a, a disagreement with um, the arena owners there. Upsticks and went, I think it was going to play at Birmingham or Villa Park or somewhere for a couple of seasons. Anyway... There was this massive stadium in Coventry vacant. Wasps thought, right, we're going to be the most expensive or rich club in the world. We're going to be absolutely fantastic. Well, hey, everyone's happy. So they sell the fans, or they sell to the, the market, 35 million worth of bonds, which had an expiry date of sometime in May this year, i.e. the bonds have got to be paid back. And it's not been no surprise. As soon as they issued them, they knew the date that they had to pay them back. And then, lo and behold, didn't get paid back. They've pushed the deadline back three times now. And now they've basically said, oh, well, we'll keep accruing the interest, but we can't afford to pay it. The way that the bond's been written out, you need 10% of the shareholders to have a meeting. You need 75% of the shareholders to vote upon the outcome. And effectively, the, it would seem, we're probably going to get libeled for this if anyone bothers listening to the podcast at this stage. I've just got sick of me ranting. But it would seem that the heads of wasps can basically just not pay the investors back and then not pay them interest and gamble on the fact that they're going to be too disorganised, a rabble of amateur investors that just thought it would all be fine, and they'll never have to pay back the £35 million. Um, So we'll see what happens there. 
But at the same time, suppliers have suddenly realised, hang on, Wasp has got no money left. And it's things like when the pitch had to be relayed after the Commonwealth Games, Coventry City Football Club, who leased the stadium now back from Wasps, couldn't play the first couple of games because they couldn't pay for the pitch to get resurfaced because the contractors wanted to be paid up front because they didn't trust Wasps' credit capability. And you, you just look at all these things and you think, what the hell's going on? This is meant to be a professional sport where if you think of the capacity of Twickenham, 80,000-ish, the average ticket at Twickenham is probably the best part of 100 quid. That's £8 million in gate receipts every single game. And you just take a step back and you think, how has it got to this stage that money gets spent like it's been out of fashion by clubs? England seem to waste money on Land Rovers more than you can shake a stick at. They're, they've apparently financial dire straits as well, even with that sort of financing. And the whole thing's a stack of cards, which is about to fall down. You've got C- CVC, who invested tens of millions a few years ago. All that money seems to have largely vanished in every single club. We've got a salary cap, which has been lowered this year, and teams are still not able to pay salaries. And you think, is it set up correctly? I've got to say the answer, as far as I'm concerned, is no. Yeah, I mean, I've said it before, and it's perhaps... I'm sure a lot of people disagree with me and maybe it is a bit of a Wild West solution, I can call it that, but I think the French have it right in terms of the only way to keep professional rugby going is to just have very, very wealthy owners who are willing to put in a hell of a lot of money to basically try and pay for success. And what you have in France is you have you have a constant turnover of a boom and bust with clubs where you get some clubs out of nowhere so he's like, I don't know, Toulon, for example, or even Racing or, or La Rochelle, the current, the current European champions out of nowhere, are suddenly wonderful teams because they have the financial backing to do it. In a few years' time, maybe they'll go the way of Perpignan and Biarritz, who, of course, you know, not so long ago were at the top of the pinnacle of the game. So, yes, it's very boom and bust. And, yes, it's probably a lot of risk. But I think, actually, in, with professional rugby, unlike football, because professional rugby is very different, with professional rugby, I do genuinely the only way to make it, ironically, more sustainable is to have that French system where you don't have a salary cap and you allow very, very wealthy owners to come in and almost use them as sort of like, as their sort of hobby play things. And I know it doesn't sound very secure and it's a bit iffy, but... I do ironically think that is, well, the most secure and safest way of doing it and to secure the future of the sport in a professional level. Yeah, I'd probably say what you need is any club can be professional. No barriers to entry that are artificial that stop teams like Doncaster or Elon getting in the premiership if they want to. If a, if a multi-millionaire wants to buy the local club down the road from you, then let them and let them go through the leagues, let them waste all their money, let them go bankrupt and start the cycle again with a different team and maybe have two team or two divisions of 10 teams and then have three or four teams that are premiership quality in the championship and make that a competitive division as well. Because at the minute, everyone kind of scoffs a bit at the championship because it's a bit of, bit of a joke, a lot of people would say. But as we know from being there a couple of times, the clubs there aren't that much worse and you get put, pushed pretty close a couple of times. The only reason they're not viable or sorry, they're not winning the same extent is because why would you invest in X many players if you can never get anywhere? And if you had a two teams in the same or two divisions of 10 teams, you could perhaps have another cup competition where the, the lower teams could really go for something as opposed to the joke, which is the Premiership Cup. I just think that if the salary cap's been proved to be not not workable, Saracen's proved that. Leicester broke it as well, not in the same way, but I think there's a lot of questions to ask about a lot of clubs behind closed doors, you hear things. And the whole system's broken, so I don't think. But anyway, before we just keep ranting and lose every single listener that started listening to the episode, I think we'd better do the roundup of the local clubs that your local men there could buy and push into the push into the Premiership. So uh, we'll start off with the we'll start off with the, the Premiership because 
that's the obvious place to start. So on Friday night, there was no fixtures due to the obvious postponements. And then on Saturday, we had Exeter 24, Leicester 20, London Irish 45, Worcester 14, Newcastle 31, Harlequins 40, and Bristol 31, Bath 29. And then finally on Sunday, we had Gloucester 27, Wasps 21, and Sale 29, Northampton 22. If we go to the local leagues, been a bit of a rearrangement of the league structures in the northeast over the last uh, few months with the all getting chopped up and changed. Effectively, you've got Durham and Northumberland going up to a higher standard of rugby. We'll start with what is now known as Regional One Northeast, where we've kind of got Northeast interest from Billingham, who beat York 24 points to 21, and Annick beat Ilkley 13 points to 6. The prior week in that league, um, they started a week earlier than usual, um, Annick beat York 13 points to 10, and Billingham beat West Bridgeford 57 points to 10. So 100% for the Northeast teams in that division, which is obviously a good sign. If you're from the Northeast, to understand the difference. But Regional 2 Northeast has no Northeastern interest. That's because it's all just basically Yorkshire. Then you've got the what was kind of your Durham Northumberland 1 is now Regional 2 North. Um, so in that one, um, Aspatria Stockton was postponed. Carlisle lost to Morpeth. 60 points to 10. Concert drew with South Shields Westo. Durham City beat Keswick. Middlesbrough beat Northern. And Percy Park lost to Penrith. You've then got Durham Northumberland Division 1. And the winners there were Darlington over Ackland, West Hartlepool over Gisborough, Hartlepool over Sunderland, Hartlepool Rovers over Pontyland, Orden and Peter Lee lost to Novacastrians, and Medicals beat Whitley Bay. Durham Northumberland Division 2. Ashington beat Bishop Auckland, sorry, Ashington beat Barnard Castle, Bishop Auckland beat Whitby, Gateshead beat Walls End, North Shields beat Sedgefield, Redco beat Seam, and Wrighton beat Winlayton Vulcans. And then the final score that we're interested in is um, Durham Northumberland 3. There's only one match played this weekend, which is Houghton beating Seaton Carew. So score of the week this week, it goes to West Hartlepool, who travelled down to Gisborough and beaten 50 points to 7. Right, ladies and gents, girls and boys, that's all from us this week. Thank you for listening, and God save the King. Bye, everyone.